reading of Amos chapter 3 from the message. Listen to this, Israel. God is calling you to account. And I mean all of you. Everyone connected with the family that he delivered out of Egypt. Listen. Out of all the families of the earth, I picked you. Therefore, because of your special calling, I'm holding you responsible for all your sins. Do two people walk hand in hand if they aren't going to the same place? Does a lion roar in the forest if there's no carcass to devour? Does a young lion growl with pleasure if he hasn't caught his supper? Does a bird fall to the ground if he hasn't been hit with a stone? Does a trap spring shut if nothing trips it? When the alarm goes off in the city, aren't people alarmed? When disaster strikes the city, doesn't God stand behind it? The fact is, God, the master, does nothing without first telling his prophets the whole story. The lion has roared. Who isn't frightened? God has spoken. What prophet can keep quiet? Announce to the forts of Assyria. Announce to the forts of Egypt. Tell them, gather on the Samaritan mountains. Take a good, hard look. What a snake pit of brutality and terror. They can't, or won't, do one thing right. God said so. They stockpile violence and plight. Therefore, this is God's word, an enemy will surround the country. He'll strip you of your power and plunder your forts. God's message. In the same way that a shepherd trying to save a lamb from a lion manages to recover just a pair of legs or the scrap of an ear, so will little be saved of the Israelites who live in Samaria. A couple of old chairs at most, the broken leg of a table. Listen and bring witness against Jacob's family. This is God's word, God of the angel armies. Note well. The day I make Israel pay for its sins, pay for the sin altars of worship at Bethel, the horned altars will all be dehorned and scattered around. I'll tear down the winter palace, smash the summer palace, all of your fancy buildings. The luxury homes will be demolished. All those pretentious houses. God's decree. The word of the Lord. It's good to see you. Glad you came back. I want to remind you of our job, whoever's preaching. The job of the preacher is to explain what the original author was trying to convey to the original audience. Original author to original audience. And knowing that, the meaning... Then it's our job to try and bridge that into the 21st century and apply it. Now, I want to remind you that when the original author Amos spoke his original message to the people of Israel, God's people, it didn't go over so well. In fact, if you've read Amos, Amos chapter 7, the most spiritually invested leader of Israel at the time, Amaziah the high priest, when he heard what Amos was preaching... He shut him down and sent him home. Frankly, Amos got off easy. Hebrews 11 tells us 
that often when the prophets preached, God's people would stone them, throw them in a well, or cut them in half. Which leads me to say this. If we're preaching Amos or really any of the prophets, and you, God's people, are not at some point mad, then we preaching bad. Where it gets hard and where some of the pushback can come is when we try to take the meaning of the prophet's message and apply it to our lives in the 21st century because that means the prophet's message is going to push on your politics and he's going to push on your lifestyles and he's going to push on cherished values that may be because you're more of an American at times than you are a Christian. And so the goal is for us to preach the meaning of the text, strive to apply it. But let me say this. When we apply it, that's where it gets a little messy at times. And that's where you may disagree. And I want you to know that it's okay to disagree. Not with the message, but sometimes how it's applied. That's okay. Let me put it this way. So that we are all on the same page moving forward. The goal when we preach and apply the message of Amos is not for you to agree with everything. It is rather for you to make an agitated assessment and repent where necessary. Are we clear? Waterstone, prepare to meet your God. Here in the suburbs of Littleton, Colorado, we have fashioned God into a God of our cherished values. We have projected upon Him things that we think God treasures and may not treasure. We have made God into our own image, a positive and encouraging God who is always celebrating. The prophet's purpose was to come and define reality. And the reality has to do with who rules, what lasts, and what's last. And the prophet's job was to bring the future, whether, as in Amos's case, it's 50 years into the future when Assyria is going to come and wipe them out, or whether it's who knows how long into the future when Jesus returns. The prophet's job was to bring the future to bear on the present. And nowhere do we need a reality check and a definition of reality of the future bearing on the presence than in our finances. And so the theme of this week in our small groups, we are going to be talking about our money, and it's going to be fun. <laughs> God and our wealth. It's one of the key themes of Amos. And we need a reality check, frankly, because we have specific tendencies. And let me say just this. This Money is talked about so much, and by the way, Jesus talked about money as a spiritual discipline more than he talked about anything else, even prayer. 
let that sit for a minute. Arguably, money is the most important spiritual discipline you will ever engage. 2,000 verses in the Bible on money. Because nothing else reveals our heart as a factory of idols like money. We have tendencies with money, right? We do. If we're honest, we have these tendencies. First, we tend to blur the line between need and want. (laughs) We tend to confuse material prosperity with God's blessing. We tend to evaluate our own personal greed only by comparing ourselves with those who have more than we do. We actually think the money is ours. So we need a reality check in Littleton, Colorado. We're going to have three steps to this reality check so that you can follow along and begin to breathe easier as we get to the end. (laughs) First, we need to understand the mission of God. That's verses one and two, the big picture. God's mission for his people, and it involves money. So we start with the mission of God, but then secondly, we're going to talk about how greed disrupts the mission of God. Greed muddles the mission. And then third, we're going to talk about how to reimagine money, the prophetic imagination about money. And it's going to be two words, one more, one more, one more. So the mission gets muddled, and so the prophets call us to reimagine money with two words, one more. All right, let's go. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the mission. Notice Amos is calling Israel back to remember the original mission. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore... I will punish you for all your sins. Amos is assuming some history here that his people know. So let's make sure we we are on the same page with him. You know, when we come to the Bible, the Bible is not just a compendium of stories like Aesop's fables, which have reader digest morals in them. If it were, it would be about us and what we're doing. The Bible is not about us and what we're doing. The Bible is about one story, about one person, Jesus, bringing in one thing, his kingdom. And when it started, everything was in its place as it ought to be. God made creation and all that exists, and he made as the pinnacle of creation women and men, and we are to be stewards, caretakers of his planet and all that he's made. And we, are, we exist to have rich face-to-face fellowship with God, walking together in a garden. That's why he made us. And we're to have that rich face-to-face fellowship with one another. That wasn't enough for us. And we rebelled, chose our own way. Everything fell and broke. But when we chose our own way and everything fell and broke, God was not surprised nor defeated. He had a rescue plan already in place. And that rescue plan involved choosing 
The word chose there in the Hebrew, yada, means to choose to have family relationship with. Choose to have someone to live life with and go through the journey together. It's a rich word of fellowship to know someone deeply and share life with them. And he chose one man, Abraham, and said to Abraham, well, let's see what he said to Abraham. Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's the thing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God called Abraham and his descendants, the people of God, to be walking previews of heaven to which you could invite the nations of the world to come and meet God and experience flourish of life with him. In other words, Israel did not exist just to have Israel and God. Israel existed for mission. And that mission was to invite the nations in for hospitality and teaching and, 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 and the opportunity to know God. That was the mission of God's people. But they struggled with the mission as we struggle with that mission as God's people. And by Amos's day, what was actually happening, as you heard Elsa read, was that Israel was staying cozy in their summer and winter homes, their homes adorned with everything you could possibly imagine that a wealth person would, wealthy person would want to show their significance and have their security. They were consuming God's resources on themselves and basically telling the rest of the nation's I don't care about you. And that's why God is going to bring the Assyrians. You know, we, Danny, I thought, said this fairly well last week. He said, we don't expect God to be a disciplinary father. We don't expect God to hold us accountable to mission. But he is. Basically, he's telling Israel, you've got 50 years. Amos was written in 765 B.C. And B.C. calendar goes back by 722 B.C. The Assyrians carry Israel off into captivity. Amos was giving them warning. Future affects the present. What had happened was that in the 8th century, Israel's two great enemies, Assyria and Egypt, were having down cycles in their culture. And Israel was having an up cycle. In fact, if Solomon was the golden age, this age of Jeroboam II was the silver age for Israel. And they had secure borders. They had strong military security. They had wealth. What had happened was they were able to get a hold of their own trade routes. And instead of the trade belonging to someone else, they, could, they had an economy. And it was booming. But what was happening is that, as you can see, the rich were getting richer, the poor struggling. And this is one of the threads throughout the entire book of Amos. In fact, this is important. I want you to see it. This idea of God and wealth is all through Amos. I want to take us on a quick tour. It's almost every chapter. Look at chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. Why? Fatherly discipline. Here's what they're doing. They sell the innocent for silver. And the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. 
Father and son used the same girl and so profaned my name. Chapter 3, our text. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed. And the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Chapter 4. Nick's going to pick this one up next week. Here, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Hear this, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husband, bring us some drinks. I don't know, I'm sorry. Every time I read it, it's like the, the housewives of northern Israel. <laughs> Come back next week and bring a friend. All right. Chapter 5, you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them 50 years and you're done. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. And then finally in chapter 8, hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over? that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest sales. See, there's a system here that's under attack as well. Cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. You heard that again. Selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Amos was saying that Israel, the chief indicator that you were off mission, is by the way you're using your finances. You are using your finances to oppress the poor, and your financial system is oppressing the poor. What was happening is that with the influx of wealth in their economy, the rich were becoming richer, the poor becoming poorer, and there was this growing gap. And that's what that whole line is about you buy the poor for silver and you exchange them for a pair of sandals. The, 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 the buying power, the enormous buying power of the rich was becoming so high that the poor and their buying power, they could not even afford basic necessities in their country. And so, you know, they didn't have a safety net and they didn't have uh, bankruptcy courts. They had to sell themselves into slavery to the rich to even get the basic necessities of life. That's what was happening. That's what Amos is going after. This growing gap between the ultra-wealthy and the terribly poor. I want to tell you something, and I think it's important. That gap between the rich and the poor, to steal a phrase from Europe, God mines that gap. The rich were mining it. God mines it. How do I know? If you even just do a brief flip through this week of the Old Testament law, it's amazing what you'll find there about God and his economic plans and how he cares about the poor. This is interesting, right? In the Old Testament law, Every seventh year was called the Sabbath year. You know, we know the parts about letting the fields lie fallow, let everything kind of recharge. Do you also know what happened on the Sabbath year? All debts forgiven. Can you imagine? All debts forgiven every seven years. I want you to think about another part of the law. The year of Jubilee. What happened on the year of Jubilee? Every 50 years, 
all land in Israel reverted back to its originally signed family. From way back, all land went back to its original owner every 50 years. What does that mean? Think about that. This idea of private land ownership, it's not your land. It's God's land. It's his. You don't own anything. Waterstone. You don't own anything. It's God's. How about the gleaning laws? Rich people who had fields and crops were not on their private land to forbid complete and utter strangers from coming onto their land and gleaning what was left after the harvest days. They were not to forbid that. Why? Because it's not their land. It's my land. The kind of God you believe in determines your values. If we learn anything about the Mosaic Law, we learn that God minds the gap and cares about the poor. That's why it's interesting. Throughout, especially the Old Testament, you see the the riches... And, and, and the, 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 the word righteous and riches often paired together. You see it all through Amos, as we've said. In other words, uh, to God, a righteous person is a person who uses their finances to join God in minding the gap and being just. To caring for people who can't care for themselves. And the righteous person is a person who joins in the mission and helps care for for poor with God's resources because we don't own anything. They're God's. A wicked person, an unrighteous person, is said in the Old Testament to be a person who looks at the resources they have and says, mine. That's the righteous and the wicked. We tend to here in the modern West to look at the poor And our slant is usually to say, well, we should be generous. And then if we're not generous, we're stingy. God always drives it deeper than stingy. God says, if you do not care about the poor, if they are not in your portfolio with your money, if you are not having a relationship with the poor, you are unjust and nothing like God. It's deeper than just stinginess. So, how does this? I feel I need to take it one more level here. I was reading last week, uh, and the Colorado chalkboard blog, and uh, they were talking about the city and county of Denver. The graduation rate is sixty-eight percent. That needs work. If you think about that, that means every year in the city and county of Denver, thousands of kids are on a trajectory to nowhere. Because they have no high school education. The article and blog went on to say that they've done research on this and discovered 
that usually that trajectory of dropout starts in the third grade. If a kid can't read by the time they get out of third grade, the percentage is extremely high that they're going to drop out of school. They just can't keep up. So, what are some of the, what's the solution? The old liberals will tell you, well, we just need to pump millions more dollars into the system. We need to have good schools and pump more and more money into them. And the old conservatives will tell you that. See, I'm going to your left on purpose. Uh, the old conservatives will tell you that it's, uh, don't waste your money there. It's the family. It's the family. If we just can keep the families responsible and together, cohesive, that will help solve this problem. I think most of us in this room would say, wait a minute, isn't it both? Don't we need good schools? And don't we need strong families? Here's the one thing we all agree on. So, you know, we, we kind of wait where, wherever we're coming from, both those sides, but we need both. But here's the one thing we can all agree on, right? It is not the third grader's fault. Right? It is not the third grader's fault. So who's watching out for the third graders? God. God cares about the third graders. And we mind the gap with him. We want to close that gap and get third graders reading. I mean, that's where we enter. We're always about justice. You know, the only thing the third grader did wrong was choosing to be born in the family and situation he was born in. Right? The third grader did nothing. If that third grader was born in your family, she would have a 300% higher success rate. Simply because of where she was born. And you and I know that our world is full of an equitable division of resources caused by geography, whether, you know, land geography or caused by the corrupt geography of the human heart. People don't choose where they're born, and some people are just born into miserable situations. And who's going to help them? God minds the gap. God does. And the kind of God you believe in determines your values. So God is waking Israel up, saying, look, the way you are using your money and your corrupt system where you're just pushing the poor out of your life, you're living in these homes and fortresses and you're pushing the poor more and more out, we have to talk about this. Israel can't see it. And thus, we get into the muddle of greed. So there's the mission that God minds the gap. He cares for the poor. He wants us as individuals to know the poor. He wants us to be very attentive to the systems in which we participate, always asking, are the systems we vote for and are involved in, are they helping the poor? He's always mindful of that. The kind of God you believe in determines your values. And so, why do we get off mission? That's what happened to Israel. So Amos is going to now wake them up. And in verses 3 through 6, this is just fascinating to me. You know, Israel's off mission. God's going to bring discipline. 
And he wants them to begin to wake up. So he has this little poem thing here. This is really cool. I won't read all of it. You get the gist. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? This whole series of cause and effect questions that everyone living in that day and age would certainly know. The answer to the first all questions to almost the last one is no. So he's kind of, you know, casting out, setting the hook and beginning to rule them in with this great poem. They're thinking, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Then you get to the last one, which, if I could paraphrase, doesn't God have the right to discipline his people when they're off mission? Yes. Oh. Oh, no. Oh, no. Amos. This great farmer poet is using this great language to wake his people up to what they're doing. And especially in the area of greed. Why? Because greed is a sin that blinds like no other. Let's talk about that for a minute, shall we? Sin as a blind, or greed as a blinding sin. I think, first of all, greed blinds us from greed. I mean, think about this. If I were to do a, a poll and ask you, you know, directly, are you a greedy person? Or no, probably I should ask it this way. Okay, who's a greedy person? Most all of us would say, well, let's see, when I think of a greedy person, I think of my aunt and uncle. They had an in-ground swimming pool. They, they're greedy. We tend to evaluate greed only by comparing ourselves with people who have more than we do. Waterstone, I've loved you and served you for 25 years. I've never been with one of you in the confessional booth. Actually, you know, we, in Protestants, we do have confessional booths. They're at Chili's. I've never been with one of you, and you've come and said to me, Larry, man, I am, I am struggling with my greed. It is shrinking my soul. I'm really wrestling with all that I have, my material stuff, not once. That's why the prophet Jesus, when he talked about money, greed, usually always began this way. Are you ready? Watch out. Watch out. You might be greedy. He didn't do that when he talked about other sins. I mean, when you're committing adultery, you know it. You don't suddenly wake up and, oh, you're not my wife. I mean, you know when you're committing other sins. But when it comes to greed, Jesus, the prophet, yells out, watch out! You might be greedy. Agitated assessment. Greed blinds us from greed. Greed blinds us from gone. Greed makes us nearsighted. Greed causes us to forget that we live forever. I mean, even the pagans get this, right, better than us sometimes. Woody Allen, if God is immortal, then I have definitely overpaid for my carpet. If we're immortal, we've definitely overpaid 
for our carpet. We are blinded from the fact that we will spend the majority of our existence in glory that uses a completely different currency. And greed blinds us. So in February, we have this great mission, short-term mission, where you can go to Uganda and, and uh, hang out with our sister church down there in Sirocco and meet your compassion child. I hope we get like 50 people to go. You should consider going in February. So compassion who leads the trip, they'll tell you what you need to do for that seven days you're in Uganda is convert 200 American dollars to shillings, and that will be enough. But let's say you're in that meeting and you think, wait, wait, you know, seven days, that's, that's a significant amount of time. I, I think I'm going to take more than 200. I think I'm going to empty my savings account and take it. In fact, just to be sure I have enough, I'm going to sell my house. And I'm going to take all my money with me. Now, if someone was in that group, I hope they would talk you out of that. <laughs> they would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, you're only going to be in Uganda for seven days. And then you're going to be in America for 70 years. So why would you want all your money just for seven days when you'll be in America for 70 years? Follow the logic, right? Follow it. If you're going to be on this planet for 70 years, when you're going to be in glory for 70 billion years, why would you ever want a big stack here when it's no good to you there? Why? Greed blinds us to greed. Greed blinds us to glory. And frankly, greed blinds us to God. In Amos and you probably picked that up. Whenever they're talking about the money thing and our money and how we use our resources, it's usually always preceded by a worship comment. You're going to even see that again next week. But here in our text, chapter 3, if you look at verses 12 through 15, he's talking about the worship house in Bethel, the church building. He says, I'm going to smack that thing down, and then I'm going to smack your homes down. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Amos's point is simply this. Greed has a way of blinding us even to God. Here, let, let me unpack it a little bit. In, in Amos 8, you read through those rich passages in Amos 8. It says that they are faithfully obeying the Sabbath laws. But what they're doing is watching their clock. Come on, 6 o'clock Saturday. Come on, 6 o'clock Saturday. Come, 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 come. I mean, they're, they're in worship. They're doing what they should be doing. But what's their mind on? Oh, at 6 o'clock Saturday, we can get back to selling grain. Come on. Archbishop William Temple had this great quote. He said, Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. And what he meant was, where does your mind go when it's not required to be anywhere else. What has your attention when nothing else needs your mind's attention? Do you think about how you look? Do you think about how, what people think of you? Do you think about the house you wish you had? Do you think about your work? What, what is it? And if you find your mind continually going there, even in church... 
that might be your functional God. And you are asking whatever it is to do what only Jesus does. And you're going to hurt from it. Greed blinds us to God. Okay. All right. So we have the mission of God and Israel's off mission and it's reflected in their finances because God's heart's on closing the gap and loving the poor. But Israel is distracted and they're consuming their resources on themselves and their homes and all the luxury items and they are stomping on the poor. So what do we do? What is the prophetic imagination of money? How do we reimagine it? Two words, one more. So one, that's in verses 9 through 11. We'll put those on the screen. Uh, You can read them. I want you just to notice how often the word fortresses appears four times in two verses. And it's also interesting to note that as Amos begins to indict their finances, he, he says, proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod. That's the Assyrians. Proclaim to the fortresses of Egypt. Amos is, just to, to drive it in home and, and get them agitated, he's saying, look, Assyria and Egypt are going to come and sit in the mountains, and they're going to watch how you're stomping on the poor. You need to understand that Assyria and Egypt in the ancient world were known as the most cruel people ever. I mean, they, they topped the Nazis in human cruelty. And Amos is saying to them, come, you got to see this. What's going on here? It's a reminder that God views violence as po- uh, poverty as violence to the human spirit, the human soul, and to participate again in systems that push people down and in personal lifestyle choices that ignore the poor is a violence to humanity. And God minds that. So he's calling, calling Assyria and Egypt to be witnesses about how they're looting and plundering and keeping all their stuff in their fortresses. What's the alternative? What's the prophetic imagination? I think the prophet Jesus has this word for us when we are stuck in a fortress mentality. It's in Matthew 25. Jesus, a prophet, is going to bring the future to bear on our present finances when he says... uh, If we could go back one slide, I think. Matthew 25. Do we we have it? Is that it? Anyhow, uh, the beginning of it is all the... uh, The humanity at the end of time is divided into the sheep and the goats. And then Jesus... The the sheep, he brings them up and says, Well, how, how did we know, you know, that we would be promised heaven? And his reply is, because when I was sick, you cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. His point there is we don't do those things to be saved. His point is you know you are saved when you do those things. Christians run towards the pain. Christians care for the poor. It's what we do. Why? Because he saved us. And so, this is interesting. And and then they said, the king will reply, 
Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That word one jumped out at me this week. I never really fully understood it this year until I, this week. I think what Jesus is saying is that to tackle these massive problems in the gap, you know, between rich and poor, between these massive problems in our life, if you choose to do it to one of the least of these. In other words, I could go around the room here and survey you individually and ask you, do you care for the poor? You'd all say yes. Yes, I care for the poor. But do you know how you can really begin to treasure the poor? How they become, you know, a big part of your life rather than just you writing a check? Do you know how to do that? You actually stop having the poor be face blind in your life. You actually be able to think of a face when you say the word poor. And you have relation, yada, relationship with them. Choose one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters. And open your home to them and share your life with them. Sponsor a compassion child. There's 50 different ways on our restore wall for you to get involved with one and develop a relationship. That changes it from writing a check to treasuring the poor. We have a great story to tell you of how one man came to this, Jim DeWeese, and uh, watch this story. It's great. It's happening all through Waterstone. My name is Jim DeWeese. My company is Trademark Electric. Average day is, boy, it can, it can change at a drop of a hat. Um, but it's a lot of scheduling, a lot of running around, picking up material, um, answering phones, um, but then managing job sites too. Um, working with clients, project managers, creating spaces, finishing basements, remodeling houses. You know, I enjoy going in and seeing either it's a completely new project and having a blank slate and helping to create that space or going in and seeing something that isn't working and making it work, like changing that space. A kitchen remodel is a good example. So I struggled in school pretty much my whole life um, and realized that that wasn't really how I made um, and that was a continual struggle. It took me long into my 30s to figure that out, um, but really felt strong with my hands um, mechanically and that's just kind of how things worked for me. As my company's been growing, taking on more work, look, just considering the idea of hiring somebody and really um, wanting it to be more than just hiring an employee, um, really wanting to see what God's redemptive story is um, and how that can work through my life, through my business. And so I thought of Joshua Station as a great opportunity for that. I was driving down I-25 and uh, thought I could just pull off and just speak to someone at Joshua Station. Um, I missed the exit and I thought, okay, good, I'm clear, I don't have to do this. And then I was like, well, Jim, you could get off at the ne next exit and turn around and go back, and so I did. Where I'm staying now is uh, at Joshua Station. Um, it's pretty much they, uh, one of the workers there just came to me, told me that there was a guy actually looking for someone, like an apprentice that he could pretty much show, you know, the trade, teach the trade to, and I, I was, I jumped right on it. I met with met with Donovan. We had breakfast one morning, and um, sat down at Panera, and kind of did a, a pseudo interview. Yeah, he's a he's a really good guy, um, 
and interested. He, he's not afraid to take on um, a task or get into it and try to figure it out. Um, he has really a good sense of big picture, um, is understanding it really well. I think he's taking it on really well. Uh, I, I enjoy the fact that you're, you're building something. You could always, you can look back and say, hey, I, I did that 10 years from now. I'd be like, I remember I did the, elect, you know, the electrical work for that job. And it's still there. It's something that you can be proud of. I love it. I think this is the best job I've ever had. Uh, and I plan to stay with it for the rest of my life more than likely. I, I really want to build on it. I see my work, I can see my work as a form of worship, as in using what God has given me and using it and doing it for his glory. Ultimately, that's it. Imagine if all of us did something like that. And the poor would stop becoming face blind to us. The kingdom of God. One more. One more. You know, when we get into this area of finances, and it's a hard area, and I tell people all the time, you know, the deeper you walk with Christ, the longer you walk with him, the more guilt and tension you'll have with your money. <laughs> it's just how it works. I mean, if it's that level of importance of discipline, of course, as you walk deeper into the journey, you're going to have more struggle with all that you have. And no matter who you are in this room, you sit in the top 95% of wealthy people in the world. Of course, you're going to struggle. And that struggle is good. Agitated assessment. But people want me to come and say, well, spell it out to me. You know, is it tithe, 10%? You know, tell me what to do. Tell me what to give. You know, it's not how it works. It's an individual thing. And here's what I can tell you. All of the way that you evaluate your finances and how much you should get, keep or how much you should give away has to be evaluated under that cross. It's interesting in Amos, if we put chapter uh, 3, verse 12 on the board, there's this kind of weird thing about... You know, uh, God has a future even for Israel. Even though the Assyrians are going to carry him off, there will be a future for him. Why? Because Jesus is going to come. And he's going to come from Israel. There's always a future ahead of us. And we get a glimpse of it there in verse, as the shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of ear. That goes back to Exodus chapter 22 where it talks about if you were a shepherd and uh, one of your animals, lambs, got attacked by a wild animal, if you just showed a little piece of ear and two leg bones, you didn't have to pay for that sheep. The owner would absorb the cost. It means that the lamb is the payment. Whenever we think about our finances, we are always reminded that the lamb has been our payment. That Jesus, though he had the wealth of heaven, left it behind in order to plow his riches into us. He became poor so that we could have the promise of heaven. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus, though he deserved justice, was condemned in order that we who deserve condemnation could be declared just. Jesus gave everything for us. And the more we meditate and, and, and 
absorb that, the more radically generous we become. So I'm saying to you, here's the prophetic imagination on money. First, do you have one? A poor person in your life whom you love and know. And second, more. The answer is always more. Why? Because Jesus gave everything at the cross. Every month you should give more. Every year you should give more. More, more, more. Because we give under the shadow of a cross. As we come now, I'm going to ask the servers for communion to get ready. And as we get ready to come to the Lord's table together, I want to put a quote on the screen. I'm going to read it and then give you a silent minute to reflect on it. The future impacting our present finances. Here's the quote, and I want you to think about this. It actually will help you get ready for your small group too. Five minutes after we die, we'll know exactly how we should have lived. Ask yourself, five minutes after I die, what will I wish I would have given away while I still had the chance? When you come up with an answer, why not give it away now? Why not spend the rest of our lives closing the gap between what we'll wish we would have given and what we really are giving. the servers would come. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. After the supper and in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood poured out for you in a new covenant the forgiveness of sins as often as you drink it remember me all of us now are invited to come to the table of Jesus who though he was rich for our sake became poor in order to plow into us the virtual riches of heaven now so if you love Jesus and want to be with him, come, leave your seat in your time, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, and be with Jesus at the table.